please be seated, except for you kiddos, you're dismissed to the rear. And uh, thank you for your singing, it's a joy to listen to you sing. If I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Nathan, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here uh, whose joy it is to serve this congregation. And uh, I'm thankful to be able to open the letter to the Philippian church, what we've been looking into now for, gosh, almost, what, five months, something like that, started back in January. Uh, And so in anticipation of that, let me pray for us that we might have eyes to see the greatness of God in His Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have spoken. And we're grateful, God, for Your Word that we can know You, to be known by You, and to make You known. So in the stillness of these moments, we pray your peace to attend to us. So many of us are filled with anxieties and fears. And we pray that you, the God of peace, would be with us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 15th chapter of the book of Mark, uh, Mark is about Jesus. Every book is about Jesus. But the book of Mark is really writing to us about the ministry of Jesus. And in the 15th chapter of Mark, we find there the uh, testimony of Jesus when he is put on trial before Pilate. And just before this, he has been all through the night being questioned by the high priests or the leaders of the Jewish people there. All through the night, falsely questioned. And he is, through the course of this time, he has had all kinds of things accused of him. The Bible tells us that none of those things stuck And yet on it goes, and eventually he's bound, he's spit upon, he's made fun of, and he's drugged to Pilate. Pilate is a Roman governor, and they're going to hope to, through him, to put him to death. And so as he's standing there, these Jewish leaders say to Pilate that he needs to be crucified because he's claiming to be our king. And we know that, at least they would say, that Caesar is king. And so Pilate then looks at Jesus after all of this, a sleepless night, false accusations, being spat upon, being incredibly dishonored. And Jesus, or a Pilate, says to Jesus, uh, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responded by saying simply, you have said so. You might, you know, what a great opportunity for a sermon, right? But he doesn't do it. He's essentially silent. And so they begin to give him more accusations. Those Jewish leaders give him more accusations. And Pilate is struck by how silent Jesus is. And he says back to Jesus, have you no answer to make? Don't you see how many charges they bring against you? And Jesus made no answer, the Bible tells us. Not a single word. And I think not only is that interesting, what is really interesting is Pilate's response to that. The text tells us Pilate was amazed at the silence of Jesus and the face of his accusations. And I think we would be too, right? We'd be amazed at how sort of calm he is in the midst of such turmoil. We get another story similar to uh, Jesus where Stephen is representing or emulating Jesus, this guy by the name of Stephen, just after Jesus is crucified, buried, resurrected. He's one of these first leaders in the new church. And Stephen, this godly man, preaches an amazing sermon. Basically, he preaches the entire Bible. And at the conclusion of that, these sort of Jew-hating, these Jesus-hating Jews begin to stone Jesus because he says that he sees the Lord. They begin to stone him. Just think about how terrible that would be. They're stoning him, and in the process of stoning him, Stephen prays for these people that are stoning him. He says to them, Lord, let not these 
sins be held against these people that are persecuting me. Pretty amazing. That's certainly probably not the last thoughts I'd be having as people are stoning me. And so again, we get this picture of Stephen that is just peaceful in the midst of great calamity. And so we ask the question this morning, how can we have peace like that? When we're surrounded by so much fear, so much turmoil, so many sort of difficult things that we're surrounded by. I am sure that some of you right now can call to mind two or three or four things that you have anxiety about or fear about, whatever the case may be. And so I ask you, how is it we can have fear in the same way that Jesus did? Same way that Stephen seems to have been represented. Well, the answer this morning is going to be quite simply deep thinking and deep living. That's going to be God's answer for us here in Philippians chapter 4. Deep thinking, deep living. Deep thinking about a few glorious truths. Focusing on those truths. Letting them orient us. Thinking deeply about them. And then living very practically out in light of them. If you do that, what we're going to see, the Bible tells us that the God of peace is with us. The God of peace will be with us. And so that's what we're going to see as we draw down to these final few uh, passages here in the book of Philippians. We've been watching how Paul has been calling this church, this local church in Philippi, to be unified, to have the same mind, to have the same love, to be of the mind of Christ, that joy may be made complete. Apparently, this needed to be addressed to this congregation because false teaching had been begun to be crept in. We've seen that back in chapter two. Uh, And then also we saw that Paul's addressing also in chapter two, this idea of humility. He's talking a great deal about humility, which would then indicate to us that there must be some level of arrogance beginning to creep into the church. And this then represented possibly when Paul says to not grumble or complain in chapter three. So maybe this pride, this arrogance is manifesting itself through grumbling and complaining. And he addresses that and he talks about how they needed to have gospel priorities over those personal preferences. But apparently those grumbling and complaining even manifested themselves into even fights between Euodia and Syntyche. Uh, these couple of ladies now, but dissension had begun to even set in. And so Paul would leveled all of these realities, these dissensions, with the greater vision of magnifying the greatness of the glory of Christ. Let that be the thing that orients us. Willingness even to suffer discomfort if we have to. Setting personal preferences aside to look at Jesus and enjoy Jesus. That's what he's been calling them to. He's reminded them that the Lord was at hand, that soon he would return and transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, that our citizenship is in heaven, that we can rejoice always in light of that. that No matter what may come to us, we can be situated and set firm in light of these coming realities. We even saw last week that if you pray that the peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. He's calling them towards contentedness and peace which leads us to his continuation of counsel to continue to stand firm in the Lord, be one in Christ, in verses 8 and 9. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Two points this morning. 
Think deeply, live deeply. You'll see where I get those in a minute. We're going to spend most of our time on that first one. So when you hear me move to the second one, know that we're getting close to the end. But we do want to think deeply and not pass on through the sermons as quickly as we can so we can get off to the district taco, right? We want to obey this passage and think deeply. Think deeply. You can see in this passage the two verbs there in the passage, verses 8 and 9. The two action points, they're pretty easy to spot. Verse 8 again, think about these things. Verse 9, practice these things. So the word for think there is, there's a little bit more going on in that passage in, in that word actually than you might first think. So that word think there is the same word that you might consider, uh, might think about when you're trying to calculate a difficult math problem. That's what that word means. To calculate, to ruminate, to meditate, to think deeply upon uh, these good things. That's what Paul's calling them to do. Paul is not calling this church, this local church, to have some nice, sentimental, passing thoughts about these things. He's calling them to calculate to ruminate, go deep in thinking about these good things. And by doing so, then verse 9, then go on to practice what you've seen me do. And the result is the God of peace would come. And so you need to know, beloved, as we think about these things, you need to know that absolutely, positively, no one drifts into holiness and peace. No one does. Nobody drifts into holiness and peace. Do you think, you can try to think about a professional athlete. Do you think that a professional athlete drifted into their ability of course not i'm sure like me all of you enjoyed ryan and sophie playing during the the uh you know the what do we call that thing when we pass out the offering thank you you think i'd know the answer to that done it a few times but like didn't you enjoy ryan and sophie playing as they play wasn't that beautiful do you think they drifted into that or was it a great deal of thought and practice Go down to the National Museum of Art. Enjoy those beautiful works of art and look at them and then ask that yourself that question. Did these people drift in their, in their ability to paint so beautifully? Well, the answer, of course, is always and emphatically no. None of them drifted there. None of them drifted there. Through pain and toil and thought and practicing, that's how they got there. And this is the case, friends, because this is how the fabric of the world is made. This is how God made the world. This would explain even why this passage maybe even begins to sound a bit like Stoicism or its more modern name of positive thinking or maybe even sort of Buddhism or uh, Confucianism. So if God is universally true, then we should expect to find a kernel of truth in all other world religions. But friends, this passage is not about merely positive thinking, as we will see, nor is this Eastern thought wrapped up in Christian robes. The source of truth that is all that is that all those false religions are trying to tap into. They're trying to make sense of their world and find peace. And so we find that here in Scripture that the way to find peace is by going against drifting and thinking deeply and practicing deeply. So here Paul is calling for these good things to be meditated upon in order to bring about a life that goes on to practice these things. And the result would be the God of peace being with our disquieted souls. But here again, friends, this is not a sentimental, passive, flippant call that is likened to, you know, let me call you to think about maybe giving $10 to your local PBS station. That's not what's being said here. This is akin to what Einstein did when he came up to his theory of relativity. Think like that. Think deeply. This is a call to slow down our hurried lives and consider the kinds of things that are good, that are right, that are beautiful. And then peace would begin to come, would result. 
And so let us briefly consider each of these things that God calls us to in order that we would weigh those things more than we are weighing those anxieties or those fears, those kinds of things. Think about those things. Think about these good things more than you're thinking about all those bad things. My guess is that's you, right? Those anxieties, you're having those anxieties because your mindfulness, your thoughtfulness is so focused on those bad things. And Paul's calling, stop thinking so much about those things. Think more about these things. And that's where we're going to eventually have peace. So first off, he says, think or consider or meditate on whatever is true. Truth here is understood to be what's real, not what's false. Think about things that are genuine, that are reliable, that are correct, that are lasting, that are righteous. Think about those things. Think deeply about those things. A good example of this would be to think about the truth that the created order is just that. It's ordered. That'd be a good thing to think about. When you go outside today, think about the fact, even though it's a bit hot, it's not going to roast you and kill you. Right? Think about that. God ordered the world and he placed the sun in such a place as to have to be close enough to warm us and do all kinds of other things for us, but not burn us close enough to where it actually burned us up. He also placed the sun where it's not far enough away to where we freeze. Think about that. That's a truth of God's ordered world. Think about the vegetation and kind of photosynthesis that happens in the world, how God ordered the world and how it says something about him. This is exactly what the psalmist is doing in Psalm 19. He's looking at the world that the created order, and he's beginning to think deeply about how all these things work together to say something about God. And then after you think deeply about the created order, most importantly, think deeply about God's word. Think deeply about the scriptures. That's the truth. Therein is the truth. Think deeply about the truth. Jesus prayed to the Father. Sanctify them. That is to say, purify them. Sanctify them in the truth. What's truth, Jesus? Your word is truth. John 17, 17. Your word is truth. Calculate the incredible uniformity of the Scriptures and the depth of the Scriptures and how they testify to what is real, to what is true in the world today. Namely, that God is real. He is not imagined. That He is alive. That He's active in the world. But that this world is also broken. The Bible is testifying to this very accurately, very robustly. This world is broken and needs restoring. This world is groaning. There's problems in the world. This Word testifies that. Think about that aspect of the Bible. And then thirdly, think about how God sent His Son from heaven to earth in order to defeat sin and death in the person, in His Son, person in the work of Christ through the resurrection. And in that resurrection, think deeply about how the resurrection is picturing a new world order, a restoration of all things, and how it will all be made right, how it's answering the problems because of the holiness of the God that set it all into order. Think deeply about that and how the Bible is testifying to these things. Think deeply about the Word of God. See, friends, there is a universal cry from generation to generation about life, love, and loss. And the Scriptures clearly testify to all of these things. They talk about the truth of these realities. They understand themselves to be the authoritative guide to these ideas. And so my encouragement to you would be to take the time to read and to consider the truth of God's Word and how it gives us answers and leads us on into peace, into the good life. Give yourself to this knowing that in such an endeavor you will come to live in that peace and find that peace as you meditate deeply on the world and on the Word. See, friends, it's my belief that much of the reason 
that we have so much anxiety, so much fear today is because not only are we not meditating on these things that Paul is calling us to, but we, have, we now live in a society that is bought into the lies of what is called post-modernity, where it is taught that truth is relative. We're told to be thinking about truth, and yet we often we live in a society that says that truth is relative. That is to say, truth can only be defined by each individual person, what they understand truth to be for them. But friends, just stop and think about that for a moment. Let's stop and think about the truth for the moment, about that idea that truth is relative. If what's true for me is what's true for me, and what's true for you is what's true for you, and there is no absolute truth, there's one big problem with that. At least one. I can think of a couple. One would be, well, what if my truth says that your truth is a lie? But secondly, secondly, not only that, if truth is relative and it is relativistic, well, then therefore we have zero grounds by which to, co- by which to uh, convict any criminal. There's no grounds for that if truth is relative. There is, if truth is relative, if there is no universal truth, no absolute truth, we have no scientific truths by which to do science. And we certainly would have no theological truths to stand on in order to determine who God is, which might explain why so many people don't want to take God seriously. And so where would this leave us if truth is relative? If a society thinks this, that there is no truth, that it's all sort of individualistic truth, all truth is relative, where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us in knowing nothing. Which would explain the general malaise of our society. We don't know anything. We can't be sure about anything, which then causes us to be more fearful about things, doesn't it? It explains, I think, the high amounts of anxiety. We just are not confident in any truth. So just stop and think about this. Why is it you get scared when you walk into a dark room? I was thinking about this this week. My wife got home late, and she was running from the car into the apartment. Why do we get scared in darkness? Why? Because we can't see. Because we don't know what's there. And how is it we have peace? We turn the light switch on. And then we see. Then we know what's there, what's true. And then we're calm. Well, friends, so it is with the truth of God's word. It's the light switch that gives us peace. It helps us know that calms us into the eternal realities of God, even amidst the chaotic world. The more that we own the realities of our world, consider the truth of God's word and understand it in light of the world that we live in, live more in those ideas, be more aware of those ideas than we are the malaise or the uh, fears of the world, the more that we will be calmed. But as long, friends, as, as long as we try and operate inside of a relativistic world that defines truth based off of individual preferences, we can be sure that we will be left to walk in the dark and have no confidence to navigate the world and therefore have no peace. But rest assured, friends, the reality is truth does exist, and everybody knows that, including the philosophic postmodern professors. They all know it, as is evidenced, and they live inside of it, as is evidenced by their knowing and believing that criminals should be convicted. By their obeying the laws of gravity. Even those postmodern thinkers, they all know truth exists. So the reality is truth does exist, and we should be thinking deeply about it. We see truth most evidently in the created order of the world, but most specifically in God's Word. And so we need to give ourselves to thinking deeply about God's Word. Christians, now more than ever, give yourselves to thinking deeply about the truth. So few actually do this. 
And so many need to do so in order to have ballast and steadiness. Yes, peace in their own lives and peace in the world. Give yourself to thinking deeply about it. By the way, guys, that's why we do what we do here at Restoration Church. I was thinking about it while we were singing. Some of these songs are a little difficult to sing. Amen? Right? Why? Because we want to think deeply and not just give you a bunch of palatable, easy things to sing. We want to think deeply when we sing. Think about the prayers. Oh, those prayers are so long. We want to think deeply about praying. Because this sermon, this sermon, how long is this sermon going to be? He's still on the first point. Right? right? We want to think deeply about the Bible. What, what, this, is why this, this is why we preach the way that we preach. What we call expository sermons. The word expository is not in the Bible. We're just trying to expose, illuminate the text. Who cares what Nathan Knight thinks? Right? If you don't know, I got a 770 on the SAT. I'm one of the dumbest people in this room. All right? The reality is, though, that if I can expose this to you and tell you what this means, this is what you want to hear, Right? This isn't this what you want to hear. You don't want to hear from Nathan. You want to hear from God's word as it comes forth and gives you peace. And that's why we do what we do here. Take the Bible seriously. Ask it hard questions. Think deeply about it. We need people like that. So few actually do that. Read good books and spend a lot of time in Scripture. So many people just repeat the phrases that they hear instead of actually considering the word of God itself. We also see that we need to think deeply about what is honorable. Not just the truth. We need to think about what is honorable. Honorable here means which is respectable, dignified. The word is often used in military circles. Duty, honor, country. There's something about the word that conjures up the image of a man or a woman. Dressed modestly, hard at work, decent with their tongue. Willing to inconvenience themselves for a task. A better task. Honor attends those that live for a law that is higher than the individual rights. But is they are living more for the good of others. The rule of law that tends the good of the whole. This is what an honorable people do. I think about this. A, a good example of this is in a movie I saw this week. Uh, maybe I'm the last person in the room to have watched this movie. But uh, I watched this week To Kill a Mockingbird. Maybe you've read the book. I watched the movie. Remember, I scored a 770 on the SAT. I'm not real bright. So I watched the movie. And I watched the movie, and the movie is uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. It's a story of a guy by the name of Atticus Finch who was a country sort of lo- country lawyer in the South, I think around about the 30s. I think I got that right. And uh, he's representing, Atticus Finch is representing this, uh, appra- uh, he's a, as a lawyer, he's representing this African-American man by the name of Tom who had been falsely accused by a drunken white fool of a man and at one point this fool of a man taunts finch for bucking the trend of continuing racism in their community and representing this man by the name of tom and he does this and he bemoans finch so much so that he stands in finch's face and he spits in his face for representing this african man african-american man and at that point, if you're anything like me, at that point, I was watching the movie and just anger crept up in me. Hit him, Atticus. Hit him. You know. And he reaches down and he pulls out a handkerchief from his pocket. And he keeps his eye focused on the man. And he wipes off the spit from his face. That's honor. He did not return hate for hate. He showed honor, respectability, dignity. 
He lived for something higher than just the God of his belly. I wish that we had more men and women of honor. Seems as though they are harder and harder to find. Uh, I think that they're out there. I think there's some here even in this gathering. But I pray more regularly, I pray often that God would raise up more men and women of conviction whose lives were marked by honor, by respectability, by dignity, willing to live for a law higher than themselves and their own comfort. Now, keep in mind, I'm not just talking about decent men. I'm not just talking about men that, you know, sort of dress nice and go to work. I'm talking about honorable men, men whose lives, men and women whose lives are taller than those around them, men whose lives demand a verdict, men and women whose lives demand a verdict, men and women willing to lay down their lives for a few eternally important ideas, no matter what would cost them. Think about that. I pray for my two boys that they would grow up to be men like that. I regularly pray for them that they would be men of honor. They seem to be lacking so much in our society today. Did you notice we hardly even use that word honor anymore? But it didn't always used to be that way. Honor used to be at the core markers of what defined a civilization in terms of its goodness. Cicero wrote some 2,000 plus years ago that ability without honor is useless. And that is the case, friends. That is universally true because it represents God, the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity, the one God in three persons. He is respectable. He is honored. And so I challenge all of you to be men and women of honor. But I want to especially challenge the men of this room to be men of honor. God built you to lead, men. He built you to lead. And this society, and I think many societies around the world, are lacking leaders. He built you to lead, and so I challenge you to be men of honor. Think deeply about what that means and pursue it for the love of Christ and his church. We need more men that are like that. We also need to be thinking deeply about whatever is just. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just. To be just is to be right, rightness. We often think about its broader term, justice, justice, which is exactly what is going on when we think about the ways that minorities in particular are being treated. That's what we want is justice for them, rightfully. So this comes in the African-American community or the unborn or any other peoples who are treated with meanness, rudeness, or violence. Even if we disagree with them seriously on some matters, those things ought not be. We should treat all human beings with dignity. And so when they are not treated that way, what do we want? We want justice. We want rightness for them. And Christians of all people ought to be marked with a passion for justice, a passion for rightness, which accords with the truth. And so that's going to mean that we need to think deeply about what is just. Because God himself is full of justice. We must study God, as it were. We'll come to that. God built the world to display that justice, to display that rightness. Therefore, when people oppose what God calls just, he rightly, un- he rightly punishes that evil. This seems to be one of the most important aspects of why God established government. You can go read about this, Romans 13. It's why he established government to uphold that which is just, that which is right, and to take down that which is wrong or not just. I think the same could be true at a spiritual level, in particular in the church. The church is made to promote justice, to hold up that which is just and right, and to take down those things that are unjust. And so, beloved, you should take the time to think on that which is just, 
that you might have instincts to oppose what God calls unjust. And I can think of no better place to think about justice than in thinking about the gospel where God gave his son to make an atonement for sins that God might be the just and the justifier, Romans 3. And as we meditate and think deeply about the gospel, we then have what? Peace, right? Peace with God, the God of peace. As we meditate and think deeply about the truth of the, of the gospel, we think about the beauty, honor of the gospel, and we then think about the justice of the gospel, uh, we then have peace with God. And as we meditate even on justice, that very naturally causes us to meditate, to think deeply on whatever is pure. That's what Paul says next, whatever is pure. That is to say, think about the things that are free from defilement, free from moral pollution. I can remember having the God of peace attend to me when I would look at my son's sleep when they were babies. I'm sure you all have done that before. You ever watched a baby sleep? It's very peaceful, isn't it? To watch them sleeping quietly. Now, to be sure, it's not because they are incredibly pure, right? I know that because my sons wake up a few hours later screaming, give me food in the middle of the night, you know. But it is peaceful to watch a baby sleep, isn't it? And why do you think that is? Well, I think it's because we can look at them and it's so peaceful to us because we see that that child has not yet been stained by all the moral difficulties of our world. And that brings us peace. They paint for us a kind of picture of peacefulness that can be found in purity. And this is what the ministry of the gospel is doing. It's men and women who have found purity in Christ and are taking that purity and using it as light to a darkened world. And so our calls to conversion are calls to purity, to cleanness, to wholeness, which leads to peace with God. And peace with God is, in fact, that, friends. It's wholeness. It's that word shalom. That's what peace is. So we tend to have a lot of thoughts about the spoils and the difficulties of our world. We, again, we tend to be more aware of those things, which explains why we have so much fears and anxieties. How much time have you given to just thinking deeply about purity, about pure things? When's the last time you've done that? And if you have done that, you know this peace that Paul is talking about. But we also see that we should think deeply about whatever is lovely, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, and whatever is lovely. Now, this one's a little bit harder to find. I think it's something more easily recognized than it is defined, but we'll define it by saying whatever is pleasing, acceptable, worthy of embrace. So this seems to be one of those things that the drunkards and the prostitutes saw in Jesus. He seemed to be very lovely to them, very attractive to them. So much so that they left the bottle in the bed to come to him and throw themselves at him. He was very lovely. He was more attractive to him. So imagine the peace, friend, that might come if, to you that if you thought more about that which was lovely instead of that which wasn't lovely. Imagine what would happen to you. If you thought more about what was lovely, like you forced yourself to read, to think, to pray, to meditate on that which was lovely and put away that which was unlovely, what would happen to you if that were to happen? See, friends, we are so flooded with so much sexual immorality that our thought life is often clouded and we are unable to see loveliness anymore. Just think about our news outlets and how they flood us with that which is unlovely. Now, sometimes we need to be aware of those things, oftentimes maybe. But how much are we surrounding ourselves and focusing on that which is lovely? In the gospel, though, we are able to find purity. We're able to find purity. We're able to find loveliness. 
again, such that illicit features become unlovely to us because we've thought so much about what is lovely. Our thoughts are so taken by that which is truly pleasing that we can no longer embrace that which is unlovely. I think about this now when I watch movies. I'm amazed at how quickly I turn movies off. I didn't used to be that way. So, like, we'll watch a movie. There's one actor, I'm not going to tell you his name. There's one actor I really like. I find him very funny, and I enjoy watching him. And there's one movie that I really want to watch. And every time I see it on TV and I put the channel on, and within, like, three minutes, like, there's language or something on it. Like, I can't watch this. Even though I want to, I can't watch this. There's something. It's not like I, it's not like there's... Uh, like I have this position, I read something, and it's sort of, it's that easy. It just become instinctual in me because I'm trying to figure so much on that, which is lovely when I hear language and I see things that are ugly. It's just ugly to me. I want to turn it off. Focus on that which is lovely. Think about that which is lovely. See, some of, some of you have spent so much time looking and thinking about unlovely things that your mind, your mind, that you think that your mind is beyond being rescued. To enjoy the lovely again. Some of you think that. Some of you think you've looked at so many unlovely things that you think you can't be rescued. But friends, you need to know all things are possible with God. All things are possible with the God of love. It may be beyond your ability to be rescued out of all those unlovely thoughts, but it is not beyond the ability of God to bring the lovely into your heart and your mind. But that's going to cause you, it's going to demand you to sit inside of those lovely things and think deeply about them and be oriented by them. Think on whatever is pure and lovely and put away those thoughts that are not and find the peace of God with you. And then next, think about whatever is commendable. Commendable. Other translations would say that which is admirable. So God is telling us here in this commendableness to here to think about that which is exemplary. It's kind of similar to honor. This would have us to consider things that are worthy of passing on. So this is why, by the way, in a city that has a lot of monuments, this is why they put monuments up. They want, you, they want to put monitors, they want to honor people in part, and also they want to help you see something that's commendable to pass this idea that this person stood for. So when you see a monument, you think about that. They, they're trying to get you to remember that this person or this thing was exemplary in some way, admirable, commendable. People that put those monuments up know that we sometimes forget these things. We forget which is admirable, what is commend, commendable. We forget that peace is found in those ideas. You know, I don't know if you've ever done this before. I would highly recommend you do this. Well into the night, go to the Lincoln Memorial. When all the tourists are gone, if you're a tourist, welcome to our city. Uh, <laughs> whoops. Uh, glad you're here, uh, but we like living here. So um, we get to do things like this regularly. We can go down to the Lincoln Memorial at like midnight when nobody else is around. And I encourage you to do this. I've done this before. Go down there when nobody else is around, and it's so much quiet, and just look at Lincoln. He was a flawed man, but he did a lot right. And I guarantee you the commendableness that you see in the ideas of Lincoln that we're trying to venerate, it'll bring you some kind of peace. There's the idea that Paul's calling us to think in, to think deeply about that which is commendable. He goes on to say, if there is any excellence, excellence there means the qualitative goodness. That's, by the way, where we get our word virtue. Any excellence, any virtue, any virtue, good thing, qualitative goodness, anything worthy of praise, he says, that is worthy of being lifted up, exalted. Think about those things. Be more aware of those things than you are the bad things. Find peace then. 
Consider them, ruminate them, roll them over your heart and your minds. Habitually work at dissecting these things and gazing at these things. And if you're having difficulty knowing how to do this, well, you're looking at all this, thinking about this. How do I do all this? So all these ideas, how do I do? Where do I start? I don't know where to start. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Study Jesus. While we may find these qualities and things here and there, you will never find them all put together than in the person of Jesus Christ. Study Jesus and you will do these things. You'll be meditating, thinking deeply about these things. A good place to do this, pick a gospel. Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Pick one of those and just slowly, deliberately work through it and study Jesus and find peace as you think about the way that he responds to things, the things that he's teaching, those kinds of things. Study Jesus in the Gospels and find peace. He's the one that's holding all of those ideas, these good ideas together. The qualities given to us in God's Word points us to the qualities that are in Christ because the Bible is ultimately about Him. So therefore, if you want to go to one place to think about these things, study Christ. Jesus called Himself the truth. We're supposed to think deeply about the truth? Think deeply about Jesus. He embodied all that is honorable. He was not only just, He achieved justice on the cross for His Heavenly Father and for us who believe. He was able to do that because He was entirely pure, unstained by the world, Therefore, he was able to make an atoning sacrifice for sin, which then shows us that he is excellent and worthy of praise. Think about Jesus. That's what we're going to do in heaven, by the way. If you want to go to heaven and you don't like Jesus now, you're not going to like heaven, which is why you won't be there. Think deeply about Jesus. Study Christ. So few people actually study Christ. So many people repeat again those phrases they've heard. They believe things that they've never taken the time to see for themselves. Christ is the virtuous man. He is the image of the invisible God, and he is revealed to us in his word. This is what we'll think about later this year in October, the Reformation. We're studying the 500th anniversary of the Reformation where people took the Bible that was cut off and only given to the priests, and they're trying to get it into the hands of the people. William Tyndale said to a priest one time why he wanted to translate the Bible into the common folks' language so that they can read it. Tyndale was asked, why does he want to do this? And he said to the priest, he said, because I want the plowman in the field to know as much about God as you do. And here it is for us. Study Christ. Think deeply about him and find peace in him. Doesn't Jesus call himself or isn't he known as the prince of peace? Study Jesus. Study Jesus. He is the whole point of salvation. Jesus is the whole point of salvation. We were saved In order to gaze, to focus, to see and to savor Christ. To find peace by looking at Christ. That's why we are saved. We weren't saved so we could get forgiven our sins and go to heaven and play golf. You were saved to gaze, to savor, to study Christ. And so that should then cause us to think, what would the evil one want to do? The enemy of Christ. If he wants us to not have peace, What would he want to do? Well, easy, right? Don't look at Jesus. Get people to not look at Jesus. That's the whole plan. He has one plan. Don't look at Jesus. He does not want people to think deeply about Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, the accuracy of Jesus. He doesn't want to do it. So how does he do that? How does he get people? How does the evil one get people to not study and focus on Jesus and find peace in Jesus? How does he do that? Simple. Get you distracted. A real simple plan. He's not that smart. He is conniving. He is powerful. 
but his plans are pretty simple to spot. Get you distracted. Don't get you to think about Jesus. My sister-in-law mailed my son these things called fidget spinners. Y'all seen these things? It is a metaphor for our world. These fidget spinners. Fidget spinners, three little prongs, little thing in the middle. You spin it, spins around. The idea of a fidget spinner is to get you to focus on something else. Right, exactly, Parker. Thank you. That makes no sense, right? So the idea of a fidget spinner is to get you to focus on something else or is to get you to do something else so you can focus on something else. And then they call it a fidget spinner, right? makes no sense to me. makes absolutely no sense to me. We are a people that is so distracted. We are so distracted. So distracted. And I think that explains, because of our distraction and our increasing distraction, I think that explains our lack of peace. Why we have an increasing malaise, increasing lack of peace, increasing fears, increasing anxieties, because we're getting more and more distracted. And we're not focusing, as Paul says, on these beautiful good things. Do you know that in the 1970s, the average person saw some 500 ads a day? Do you know how many we see today? Roughly 5,000 a day. What do you think that's doing to us? It is doing something. You know that, right? Those ads and those things, the movies you watch, the television shows you watch, you know they're doing something to you. Those are not neutral. They want you to be discontent so that you would buy their thing. That's their whole plan. Be discontent with what you do have and buy this that you don't have. Their plan, those ads... All these things are trying to get you to be more discontent so that they, you can, they can tease you with finding contentedness in their thing. And then there will be another ad that will make you more discontent about that thing, and then you'll just keep going in a vicious cycle. Think about the habits that you have with your screens. Mm. We can hardly go anywhere without looking at something and finding a screen. We can't even hardly stand to be in stillness. Anybody find it strange at the end of all of Restoration Churches when we have that moment of silence? Does it feel awkward to you? Maybe that's because we're not used to sitting in silence. We come up to a red light if we're driving. What do we do? Right? We go in the metro. What do we do? Right, on and on. We're so distracted. These screens are distracting us. We sit on the couch. What do we do when we sit on the couch? Sit on the couch, turn on Netflix, and flip out your phone. (laughs) Two screens at once. Guilty. I do it all the time. I am just as guilty of this. We are so distracted. Recent studies tell us that the reason so many of us are exhausted is because our minds are never at rest. They're always searching, looking for something. They're always distracted, bouncing around, never going deep which I think explains how our hearts lack peace because we're not focusing on the good things of God. Those don't orient us. We're so thin. And then think about those things that we are looking at on those screens, those things we are distracted by. How many of those things that we're looking at are actually orienting us, trying to orient us towards true peace, towards true virtue, towards the true virtuous man, Christ Jesus? How many of them? Some are. Most of them aren't. And I don't mean to say that all those things are evil. They're not. But rarely do our daily habits orient us towards thinking 
on Christ, thinking deeply on Christ and finding peace for him in him. Often do our daily habits orient us towards thinking about ourselves and what we do or don't have. And so therefore, since we're so distracted, what do we do? We often think the worst about other people. Things that we do or don't like about them. Because we're just not in good habits of thinking the best about people. Because we're not thinking a lot or deeply about the best about God. Our hearts are more oriented to be more discontent with people and with things and with jobs and with our schools and with our clothes and with our whatever. Nicholas Carr says in his New York Times bestselling book, not a Christian book, but a good book. Nicholas Carr said in his book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. He says that we become neurologically what we think. Don't you love it when non-Christian authors make biblical points? He goes on to say that the Internet, this is his words, the Internet is chipping away at our capacity for concentration and contemplation. His conclusion is, by the way, that we become more animalistic. We sort of operate out of our instincts, our urges. We're distracted, and our hearts then are distracted, not at peace. We've become what we think, and yet we don't hardly think anymore. And I think this is why so many of you have a hard time reading a book, getting through it. This explains why it's difficult for you to have meaningful conversations and look the person in the eye for an extended period of time without darting the eyes around or grabbing the phone or whatever. Some of us like to say that's just the way that we are. Maybe in part, but it's likely because you've developed habits that want to constantly be stimulated but rarely situated on the beauty of God. Stillness. What Paul is calling us to here. And isn't it good to know that the Philippian church is having similar problems 2,000 years ago? Not with phones, but with other things. They're more aware of the bad things than they are the good things. And This is why I think so many of us lack peace. We lack peace because we haven't stilled our hearts and our minds on eternally beautiful truths that are found in Christ. We are like that shaky bottle under the fountain. We keep moving around under the fountain as the water goes in and we're never actually stopping to get full. I hardly believe, friends, that this is spiritual warfare. Distraction, focusing on what we don't have, being distracted. This is spiritual warfare. So I want to encourage us all. Put off Netflix binges. Not all the time. It's not a rule. Not in the Bible. Just be aware of that. Be suspicious of it. Put off Netflix binges and the violence and the sexual immorality that is often accompanied by them. Pay attention to the language that is used. Again, it's doing something to you. You need to know that. Put off listening to language and songs and things that are not excellent, as Paul says here. Put off just our frequent addiction to Instagram and Facebook and Twitter that's just keeping us distracted, focusing on a bad life or an idealistic life that we'll never actually have. Keeping us thin, not focusing on a few deep truths. Get off those things for a while. Leave your phone at home and go to Rock Creek Park and take a walk. And pray to God. Maybe think about one of these things that Paul says for 30 minutes. Put on the kinds of habits that will cause you to be oriented towards deep thinking, on the things that really matter, that bring you to God and you find peace in Him. Develop habits of quiet and stillness. Read books that demand something of you. Surround yourself with people that will ask you questions that go beyond the trite and the superficial. Come to church on time. 
having already given thought to the passage, eager and looking forward to what God is going to say to you in that time. Develop the kinds of rhythms in your life that will cause you to think on whatever is true and right and beautiful. How about this? How about this? Read less of the Bible, but think about it more. And then pray more. It's not in contradiction to what I said earlier about meditating on the Word. Think less. Read maybe a few passages instead of, I've got to read a chapter today. Maybe just read a sentence. Think about it. Take it to God and pray and find peace. Put down the habits that are causing you to be thin, inward, and sensual and causing you to be distracted from God. It's the only way that you're going to palatably sense the presence of the God of peace. See, friends, we run at 60 miles an hour with so many distractions in our lives, fitting Christ in here and there, and we wonder why we don't sense more of God in our lives. Because we haven't given Him time. We just try to fit Him in. Give Him a few minutes. We wonder why we flounder and why Christ seems so boring. We wonder why we're so full of fear and anxiety. It's because, in part at least, we've not slowed down and aimed our thought life at Him. We've aimed it at other things, oftentimes unknowingly, and as a result, our hearts and minds are thin, distracted, and discontented, and we lack peace. We wonder why we complain so much, grumble so much. We wonder why we're so full of fear, so full of unhappiness. God's showing us why this morning. We don't think about Him in His infinite beauty enough and oriented by those things. We drift instead of digging down. But friends, digging down is how God made us to grow. Oak trees grow slowly by going deep and then rising up in strength. And because of that, they can withstand the fiercest of storms. See, the church in Philippi didn't just wake up one day and decide to be grumpy and arrogant and pick fights with one another. They drifted there because they stopped meaningfully thinking about the eternal realities that give us peace as Christians. They lost sight of the God of peace, that he was their identity. So slow down, dig deep, find peace with God, develop good, peaceful habits of being with God and with God's people in deep things. If you want that, you're going to have to deliberately begin habits to do that. And again, let me emphasize, this is going to take time. Secondly, briefly, we not only have to think deeply, we have to live deeply. deeply. Verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. We've seen this a good bit before. Paul, just like 20, if we were reading the letter as a letter, just like 20 seconds ago, he would have said this, imitate me back in chapter 3, verse 17. Paul is driving home this idea of what they see in him to practice it, to imitate him. He's capitaling on the on the, all that he's done, to capitalizing on all the investment he has in them. Remember me. Remember what I look like. Remember what I did. Practice those things. Practice those things. When Paul talks about what you learned, received, and heard in him, he's talking about all the things that he just talked about. Don't just think about things. Practice things. Thinking, right thinking, should. It doesn't always, but it should lead to right living. And as a result, the God of peace comes. When we practice those things. Practice. Let's not forget those strong words of James to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Faith without works is dead. Whereas Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. It's never enough just to think about whatever is true. This has to translate into a life that illustrates the truth. I can think all day about how lovely my wife is. But if that does not translate into some acts of serving her loveliness, 
hands and deeds and mouth, if that doesn't translate, then something is off in my thinking. It's got to manifest itself towards that practicing. And then that's when the peace gets, begins to come in. When the thinking and the living begin to kind of come together. The peace comes in there. It's not just in the thinking. It's in the thinking that leads to the practicing. When think about music, for example. Think about that violin that was being played by Sophie a little while ago. Do you think that Sophie sat down and just read books about the violin, and that's what made her really good? Think that's what she did? Sophie, is that what you did? Probably not. No. Right? A violin is made to what? To be played. To be played. To be practiced. So yes, you've got to take the time to read, to think about the music, to understand sheet music, but eventually you've got to pick the, the violin up and you've got to start practicing it. That's how you get good. That's how you make beautiful music, is thinking and then practicing it deeply, and then beautiful music comes. Peace comes. It's the thinking combined with the practicing. And by the way, you can't skip the thinking either. You can't go straight to the practicing, right? I mean, if some of you, she's not going to let you do this, but if you were to come up and grab Sophie's violin and say, let me just try practicing on this thing, you'd be terrible. And if you'd be here next week, never stop, you'd still be terrible, Right? You might be a, this much better. You might be this much better. But the reality, you've got to think a little bit about what's going on. Right? So if you would want to say to you, you need to do this, you need to do that, think about, okay. Right? It's the thinking combined with the practicing that then leads to the peaceful music. So it is in our lives. Stilled, slowed thinking on meditating on the beauty of God, leading us into lives that practice the beauty of God. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, not only should you develop habits that cause you to slow down and think deeply, you also need to develop habits that will cause you to practice or live deeply. And so you need to know, again, this will not happen overnight. They come with practice. They come with practice. So don't wake up tomorrow and say, I'm going to wake up 30 minutes early, and then I'm going to have 30 minutes of quiet time with God. And then five minutes in, you're like, oh. You're not going to pray, pray like Joey Kraft does if you haven't taken the time and the effort to think about it and do it as Joey does. Take some time to think about it and practice it. Start slow. You know, when I was a young man, my late teens, somebody told me to have a devotional time. And I started having a devotional time, and it was like five to seven minutes, and I'd read things, and it was probably terrible. But nevertheless, I did it. And those five to seven minutes now translate, I'm 42 years old, and most days, from that day till this day, I haven't missed too many devotional times. They're not all, yeah. They, but, but now, now, like it would be strange for me if they were less than 30, 45 minutes. Now, how did that happen? Well, it took, I don't know, you all know how I'm terrible at math. Whatever, whatever like 17, take away, you know, 42 from 17, whatever that is. That's how long it took. It takes time. It takes effort. And it eventually gets there. But it should get there. I remember, I remember develop, guys, re- develop habits like this. I remember uh, I, I, used to, I used to love baseball when I was a kid. I still love baseball. I read books. I thought deeply. I read, bought a book called The Mental Game of Baseball, and I read it, thought about the mental game of baseball. And I would uh, do things like I, I got tickets one time to go watch the greatest team on planet Earth, St. Louis Cardinals, play against the Atlanta Braves. And my favorite player was Ozzie Smith, and I got tickets, and I went 5 o'clock. 5 o'clock for 7 o'clock game because I wanted to watch batting practice. And I watched Ozzie Smith take ground ball after ground ball after ground ball. And he would do all these sort of strange things with his feet and these different drills. And then he would go up into the batting practice cage and he would hit. And he would hit. Hit the ball to right. Hit ball to left. He would bunt. He did all these things. And what did I do? I went home and I did all those things just like Ozzie did. And I got better. And I got better. And you know what? Because I got better, I love baseball more. And the same is true with us. We've got to think about these things, and we've got to practice these things. And it takes time. And as long as we're aimed at Christ, 
our love is going to change. Our love is going to change for him. We've got to practice Christ that we might then minister to others. My mom used to drag me to church. I did not want to go. She drag me to church week after week after week after week after week. I got in the habit of going to church. It's strange for me to not go to church. I developed habits and I aimed them at God. And, you know, we say this to our community group all the time. So we have been in a community group virtually every single week for the last 15 years. Just think about that for a second. In church, healthy church, preaching the word for almost, I don't know, a really long time. And then community group for some 15 plus years. Plus those devotional times. What do you think that does to a man? If it's aimed at God. When we're thinking deeply, developing habits, and then practicing those habits. Think about the times that you miss church, beloved. You miss church more than you realize. When's the last time you took the Lord's Supper? Some of you miss church enough to where you, it'll go months before you take the Lord's Supper. But that's a practice. That's a practice that God wants you to have. You could say, well, Nathan, it's your fault. You only offer it once a month. All right, maybe that's true. But nevertheless, think deeply about these practices. Come take the Lord's Supper and understand that's a practice of rehearsing the gospel for yourself so that you would know and be oriented by those things and find peace in those things. And slowly you're beginning to find peace with God as you orient towards thinking deeply and living deeply, practicing those things, asking questions as to what it looks like to obey those things, and then living it out. And you're going to get it wrong from time to time. You're going to miss from time to time. But ultimately, the upper trajectory of thinking deeply about God and practicing God will give you peace. But as long as you stay in those distracting habits, you won't have peace. It's that simple. But if you develop Godward habits, Christocentric habits, and you stay on them, your life will have peace in the midst of a chaotic world. Just as it was with Jesus before Pilate. Just as it was with Stephen when he was being stoned. Give yourself to them and find peace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for peace. We thank you that you are the God of peace. That's what this text says, that peace comes from you. And God, thank you that you've revealed to us how to know you, the God of peace. Forgive us for the times in which we are oriented by our anxieties and our fears. And cause us, God, to think deeply about these beautiful things. And then practice them deeply, working them out. That you might be made known to all the world. And that we might have peace in the midst of it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.